0: Hello, and welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well, wherever you may be. Today we hear from Chris Thicke, founder of Archery Pictures and executive producer of Sky Atlantic drama Riviera, about the challenges of bringing back multinational shoots in the current environment. And Orly atlas Katz, chief executive of Ananay, about how Viacom CBS's acquisition of the company earlier this year has changed things for the Israeli pay-TV group. Riviera became a hit for Sky Atlantic when it debuted in 2017, with viewers seduced by the opulent thriller about an art curator played by Julia Stiles who falls into a world of double-dealing and crime following the death of her husband, all set against the backdrop of the glamorous French Côte d'Azur. Executive producer Chris Thickier, founder of Archery Pictures, spoke with Michael Picard ahead of the third season's recent debut – about making the show in three different countries and why multinational shoots may well be on hold for the coming 12 months, given the ongoing coronavirus situation. He started off talking about where archery was at when the pandemic started.
1: We were very fortunate in that. We had sort of three projects. One finished filming just before Christmas. I had a movie that finished shooting on March the 10th and we finished shooting Riviera season three on March the 12th. So either it was brilliantly prescient producing or we were just very lucky. But it meant that in a strange way it hasn't really affected us in the same way as I think lots of people who were either in production or pre-production in that we were always naturally going to go into post. The film was shooting in southern Spain, which at that point was the absolute hotspot of the virus and we managed to get out without anyone infected and everyone got home. Uh, Riviera, we were finishing in Buenos Aires. Similarly, they went into a very hard lockdown and we got everyone home so we were pretty lucky. And then we went straight into post and it was possible and it was slow and frustrating and, and different. You know, I've never worked on either a movie or a television show where I haven't been able to be at least a portion of the time in the edit so, you know, just in terms of actually editing and cutting the shows, it meant that process... Much as Zoom has been fabulous and and all sorts of things, it's a different process. It's more of a sort of presentational format. The opportunity for kind of open and frank discussion is a little bit stymied by the the medium. So that was complicated. And then actually, certainly speaking for Riviera, the post process once you then moved into sound grading, you know, ADR or everything. You know, I have to say the post team did an unbelievable job. And remember, we were trying to do crowd ADR in Argentina, which you can imagine imagine was pretty difficult in the lockdown circumstances particularly the ones they had there but we managed to get through it, it just meant that it was I mean I, I think normally I would watch each episode of a series of television maybe I'd watch them six or seven times through the process and I think this time I I would say i probably watched every episode of Riviera season three 30 to 40 times because what you'd need to do is you'd need to all watch remotely give notes have a zoom conversation have the work happen you know off-site and then come back to it So, yeah, it's (laughs) we're very, very delighted that it's delivered. And I'm very proud and happy that we managed to do it and that it's as good as it is. But yeah, the process is frustrating. And I think that will be one of the issues going forward. I think for anyone producing something on large scale is how do you build that new time frame? You know, how you approach delivery and working methods and all sorts of things.
2: And so in terms of that, I guess that's the, the back end of the process. How has the, kind of the front end in terms of development and things got like, you know, creating projects themselves kind of changed for you? I guess that's all remote as well. But Largely, hopefully untouched as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've got a few things going. We actually we did run a virtual room for a project, you know, that was a, just a pure piece of development uh, in house. And having been through that process, and we're currently writing, uh, we're currently running a, a live room again. There's no comparison to having a group of people in a room talking over one another in the nicest possible way. And I do think that the creative process of developing, certainly in a sort of in a group format, I'm sure lots of people are doing it that's really hard you know we're fortunate that we've got a room that's happening now obviously only six people obviously socially distant and some people are zooming in that may well be in danger depending on what happens with the next round of lockdowns but yes I am no fan of virtual writers rooms and I think there's an additional element of creativity to human interaction face-to-face in a room the way that people communicate the way that people work with each other I think is different if nothing else it means that you're not sitting looking at a picture of yourself for hours on end uh, which I think it's massively distracting for anyone so so the, the process is, is ongoing I, I think when it began when the lockdown began there was this idea that it was going to be like a writer's strike that oh everyone's going to have this enormous amount of time on their hands and so all of those spec scripts and amazing new creative endeavours would be launched because people had time on their hands and to date I'm not sure I'm feeling that I, I think actually the The lockdown itself and the uncertainty that that bred plus people with kids and homeschooling and all those sorts of things I don't believe it was a massively creatively productive time because I think people were genuinely thrown by what was going on in the world I think they were affected by it and then on uh, sort of structured creativity in terms of rooms and all those sorts of things I'm I'm afraid I, I sit in the camp that can't wait for it to be live again.
2: Having come from a an international set with you know cast and crew and locations you know all around the world converging into one you know onto one show how do you foresee shows like that being made in the next year if if it's going to take that long or longer you know how do you see the you know the industry kind of shaking out from from this hopefully over the next few weeks and months
1: well I mean it's a difficult one this it's um, glass half full and glass half empty in this regard in the glass half full is I don't think there will be another show that goes to three different countries Uh, On this scale for quite some time. I mean, you know, so so the plus side of that is we're about to launch a show which is unbelievably escapist, glamorous, and international. And I think there'll be a massive paucity of that material for some time. So selfishly, I hope that that will benefit the show. But for my business, you know, the the projects that Archery are known for, the projects that we're interested in developing and producing tend to be large scale and international. And I think that's going to be a very, very tough prospect. You know, production is starting up, we were strangely on on another project. We did a few days of reshoots about six weeks ago and it was kind of an interesting, actually it was quite an interesting way to see how production will run and it ran fine. There were COVID protocols and procedures and again I think it will make shoots take a little bit longer and there will be an additional cost element to it and at the moment there seems to be certainly a a graph which goes from the sensible to the demented in terms of how one approaches COVID security in production. But I, I think you we would be brave to be doing something that was multi-territory for the next year. I think you can mount large-scale production, but my instinct would be that you probably want to be in a single territory rather than multi-territory. Obviously, we're you know we're constantly trying to keep up with and figure out what the insurance options are, whether shoots are insurable, how you would work them in, how you would bond them. But the added difficulty and anticipated problems with moving crews and talent across borders when you you don't have the security of whether or not there are going to be quarantine laws in place. I think, I think, you know, if you were to do something large-scale and international, you would pick a country, you would move to that country, and you would shoot in that country. And I think you'd be brave to be trying to do multi-territory shoots at this point. Uh, and I think that will, I can't see that really restarting for, I'd, I'd say, a year. I mean, I, 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 I think if, if I'm honest, we have two shows that we're looking at potentially for the back end of 21 or the beginning of 22. They are large scale they are international but we're sort of saying okay we, let's pick a country and not try and globe trot in quite the same way.
2: Could you find Buenos Aires in uh, the UK perhaps?
1: It's definitely possible I think that you know the the problem we set ourselves with Riviera was that we were very clear very early before we even began season one that we wanted it to feel authentic and be authentic that actually if you were going to do a show that was called Riviera and you know when we first launched it was very much focused on the south of France we wanted to be there and you know there were lots of good arguments financially to go and try and match it in Croatia or match it in some you know low-cost production centres. But for us, we felt it was going to be part of the DNA of the show, that it was that we were shooting in the real locations and finding the most glamorous locations that match the show. So I, I, strangely, for Riviera, I don't think we would ever consider doing a show that wasn't in the place that we were saying it was going to be. However, what we might do is have a look at that show and say, well, countries are big <laughs> and could we explore a single country? I mean, I think, you know, in the instance of season three... I think it it was exciting for us to be able to take the show internationally and to start to travel with it. It, You know, it is a a show that sits amongst the 0.1%. So, you know, the very wealthy and one of the reasons that the Riviera itself attracted us to begin with because it was so multinational and a a sort of mixture of different people from different countries and cultures. So the idea that we could follow that group of people around the world was exciting for us and it also meant that we could kind of open up the show and take it into new storylines and sort of new adventure for. Georgina, the Julia Stiles character. But I mean, you could go to Argentina and do a whole show in Argentina, and you could shoot 500 different. You know, they have mountains, they have jungle, they have cities, they have beaches. So, so it is possible.
2: And so, I mean, tell us a bit about season three now of Riviera, because I guess for most other shows getting to season three, they'd be kind of hitting their sort of comfortable stride maybe, and they'd have kind of the pattern that they'd know what they were doing. But I guess it's integral to Riviera maybe that there's so many twists and turns and secrets and double crossings maybe that season three is is just another step on that kind of winding winding road maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as a, as a company, we tend to be quite self-critical. So we sort of, we you know, our, the goal with everything we do is to try and make it better. Particularly with this season, Riviera, the first two seasons were very much, they, they were of a piece. And the fact that season two was a direct pickup from the finale of season one. And, you know, we were very involved with this dynastic kind of operatic drama and tragedy around the Cleos family. And certainly the events of season one had ramifications through season two. I think by the end of season Season two, we knew we had finished that story. We'd sort of completed that story. But in doing so, we'd also had a, a you know, a two season period to really establish the, the character of Georgina. And, uh, you know, again, where I, being self-critical, I think we'd been successful. The first series was incredibly thrilling and hooky and fortunately very successful. But because a lot of stuff was happening to Georgina, she felt like a reactive character. And what we wanted to do in season two was start to delve into her character and, and kind of start to unpickle pick the complexities of who she was, this woman who chose to kill her stepson at the end of season one. So I think our goal for ourselves is to make her more proactive and to really sort of build out that character. And I think what we managed to achieve at the end of season two was a really interesting, complex, ruthless, but you know, a a character with her own very clear moral standards and universe that maybe sit just slightly to the side of what one's traditional moral universe would be. So I think for us the exciting thing was to take her and then see whether we could put her into a new situation. And in Julia we've got a spectacular actress who completely embodies the character, loves the character, and so we sort of thought it was exciting to take her on a new adventure. In terms of where we go, we start the action in venice and the other thing that i think was exciting for us was not having to do a direct pickup so we we pick up you know notionally a year after the events of season two she has settled she's in london she's teaching at the hold, and we introduce a new character Played by Rupert Graves, uh, Gabriel Hirsch, who is uh, in the world of art restitution, who persuades her that this might be an area she'd be interested in. They go off to Venice, they're going to restitute a, a famous painting back to its rightful owners, and all sorts of stuff goes wrong which then leads us back to Saint Tropez in the French Riviera and then springboards us into a, a kind of political conspiracy in Argentina.
2: I mean, why do you think it was so successful in season one? And, and what are those, you know, tempo moments or the kind of tone or style of the show that has meant, you know, you're now kind of tried to carry through for season two and obviously now season three?
1: I would say that... One of the reasons season one was successful, and credit really to, to Anne Menser and Cameron Roach, who, who, you know, Anne was then at Sky working with Cameron. When we we'd sort of developed the project, I developed the project with with my partner, a, a guy called Paul McGuinness. For a couple of years, Paul used to be the manager of U2, had been the manager of U2 for 35 years. And he and the band had had houses in the South France for a long time. And he came to me with the idea of doing something that was based down there and really did look at this idea of a, the sort of international jet set, the notion of you know behind every great fortune lies a great crime and we brought Neil Jordan on to write the pilot when we first took it into Anne and Cameron I remember getting a call from her to say is this fun and we went yeah it's fun and and I think contextually you know at the time when this project was presented to Sky it was right in the middle of Scandi Noir it, it was all cold it was all grey most of it was about child rape people were wearing jumpers and fundamentally there was something exciting about doing a show that was avowedly colourful glamorous, big international that still delivered on the sort of thriller beats but was, was fun and entertaining and I think there was an appetite for it so if I was, if I were honest I'd say that was one of the key reasons for the success of Series 1 was it just filled a gap in the market that wasn't really being accessed and I think people were looking for something that was escapist and glamorous and exciting. I'd say Series 1 was uh, it was also you know incredibly hooky and thrilling, I think what we managed to do with series two, as I sort of touched on earlier, was to start building it out in terms of psychological complexity, and I think that was what we needed to do to progress the show from being a part-break, you know, based, you know, sort of momentum-driven thriller into something that had more depth and again, I believe that we achieved that, and in approaching three, what we really want to do is try and have the best of both of those worlds. We decided to move it from ten parts to eight parts to really lean into its thriller nature and actually I think 10 is, a, is sometimes a difficult format to maintain a core thriller plotline. so I think we've decided to re-engage and make it a pure play thriller but bring to it all of the complexity and depth of character that we'd invested in in series two again we're very fortunate uh, in the case of season three we we had three great partner producers in Venice in the south of France and, and in Argentina uh, as I said earlier we we always set ourselves ourselves the task of trying to shoot in the best most glamorous most difficult locations to to achieve whether that's on super yachts or unbelievable houses or incredible sort of cultural buildings and monuments i feel like in each country we you know we always try and find something that's Emblematic of the place that we're shooting, and you know, we try and give scale, and we try and give our audience an insight into where we're shooting, and particularly this, this sort of lifting the curtain on the the world of the super wealthy and where they live and go, and in whichever country they're. In. And
2: are you planning more Riviera? Is that, or is that, I guess, going to be put off uh,
1: for a little bit
2: to see how things uh, shape up? We're very yeah. much
1: looking on um, on what might be a full series. which is that's one of the things we're working on at the moment is kind of storylining how we might how we might take yeah. it a bit further, but. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, at the moment we're also very focused on making sure that as many people as possible watch this one and enjoy it.
0: Chris Thickier from Archery Pictures. Viacom CBS took full ownership of Israeli producer and pay TV network NNA Communications in April this year. The latter's chief executive... Orly Atlas Katz spoke with Gunnar Kuse about how the deal has transformed the business, opening up greater international opportunities and contributed to a faster return to production after lockdown.
3: So, first of all, we are very happy to have a new family of Viacom CBS, as it is one of the biggest media organizations in the world creating huge amount of great content. So to be part of this family, it's it's an honor. And it's really we believe uh, that it will grow an A in, in a faster way than if we would do it by our own. It's not a, a, a strange family for us because we were working with this Viacom for years. For I guess Udi started to work with them in 1998. So it's, it's, it's not all new to us, uh, but it, it's definitely upgrading us. I think uh, the first thing that we are all happy with is the fact that in the last few years, the Israeli content industry is doing beautiful stuff Fauda and Euphoria and, you know, there are so many examples of, of great Israeli content that's been uh, done uh, from Israel. And we are part of this great opportunity. And we in NNA succeeded in, in getting to international market as well with with a Greenhouse Academy, a teen drama that we did for Netflix. So for us and for Viacom CBS, it is a great opportunity to tap into the Israeli content market and, and get it outside of Israel and also get it in Israel in a bigger way by co-producing or, you know, tap into the talented creators that are here in Israel.
4: Uh, what has it changed in terms of your role? First of all, it
3: was very important to CBS to keep us as an independent, innovative company. And they asked me to continue in my role as the CEO of the company. And uh, I'm working now with a bigger team and with few new colleagues. And it means that I'm learning a lot. For me, the biggest change is that I have colleagues and people that I work with that can upgrade my skills in the business side because, again, being part of this big and professional uh, media company like C B S it's great. They have so much experience and knowledge from everywhere. And the other bit is the possibility to explore our Israeli content with the help of this family, distributing our content, our titles on one hand, on in the other hand, co-producing with Viacom, CBS, or using their knowledge and know-how to co-produce with other clients, companies. It's big for us, as a company that was doing quite well in the Israeli market and in the international one, now to have this full uh, range of knowledge, experience and connection outside of Israel, it's it's great.
4: What changes in terms of your channels, given that you were um, operating uh, CBS channels already? Does anything change or, or are they more behind the scenes? No, nothing is changing for now. Yeah.
3: Um, I think uh, Viacom CBS is happy uh, from the way we are uh, managing uh, our tw- 12 channels in the Israeli market. It is a very hectic market with a lot of changes and very professional one. And we are keeping ourselves on top of the the knowledge and the changes all the time. What we do have now that we are part of this group is understanding on other territories and a quick way of learning and educate ourselves that this market is going to hectic changes, the streamers, the IP, um, the, the broadcast, all of it, huge changes all around the world. And to be part of this group, help us to get to the information and learn a lot. Every day, Uh, I can uh, give example on on the COVID side. So once the COVID attack all the globe, so everyone stopped producing, obviously. And our production company is our biggest business. And when we went back to production during uh, the COVID time, it was around June, we had Huge help and uh, instructions from uh, the Viacom CBS task force on how to do so. And we got back to producing with a protocol of uh, Viacom CBS that touched every step of the, the stuff we needed to handle the uh, security to keep the employees and the talented healthy, all of it. We got huge help from Viacom CBS and i think it's a great example of how the fact that now we are we are being owned by this organization helped us go back to production really quickly and in a very good way and we succeed to finish 10 different production from june to now which is huge huge and none of them uh we had any covid issues
4: as an example of the sort of uh, production challenges that you faced you know what have been the biggest lessons, I suppose, and what sorts of additional measures are you now implementing in order for the content pipeline essentially to keep flowing?
3: So um, again, with the big help of the task force of CBS, we did a few things. One of them, for example, was uh, dividing the crew to capsules and to bubbles, and they couldn't interact between uh, the bubbles. So, for example, the whole crew of uh, Beauty cannot interact with the producer's uh, bubble, and the producer bubble cannot interact with anyone else, which was, you know, it's a big thing because you have breaks, you have, you, you want to talk. No, they couldn't interact with each other. We divided a whole uh, area, a different area, and so we had to double the space we took. Because then we had to divide the areas and really strict between the different area. You couldn't move between the areas, which was big. We doubled all our uh, monitors because we had to double them. You couldn't be crowded around a monitor. So the beauty team got their own monitor and the director and everyone got different. So we had to double everything. We had to put everything in nylons so it won't pass the disease. We had a corona uh, inspector on set all the time, forcing everyone to put masks to clean their hands. And uh, so we had few big measures that we did on the production. On the other hand, as a producer, you have to be really flexible because you have to change the, 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 the schedule every day almost. Because if someone doesn't feel well until he's been tested, you have to postpone the shooting or to get different crew Uh, on a different day uh, because of someone doesn't feeling well, or uh, we expect that he has the virus. So we had to be very flexible. It's a 70-day shooting drama, and it took us instead of 70, 75. And we had to change every day almost because not only if someone didn't feel well or or if someone uh, had to go into uh, quarantine because he was next to someone, so we had to change everything again. So we had to be very flexible.
4: Essentially, you'll be using this model going forward for the foreseeable future until things change.
3: And now it's the way—the new way of producing. In the beginning, when we started, we said, okay, let's do it for a month, too. the corona will go away and we can all go back. But no, we understand that this is here to stay and the planning is very important. You have to plan everything in advance, the areas, the staff, the people that you always keep someone as uh, to replace someone because of uh, the changes. And we also did some changing in the script on physical, if we could avoid physical uh, touch between the... The actors, we did it. Lucky for us, most of what we are producing is for kids and uh, teens, so we could do it without a lot of physical closeness. Uh, so it was a quite a learning curve, but I feel now we are very up to it. We know this is our new normal.
4: And can I ask you a little bit about the insurance situation in Israel? How that compares with other international markets? Because that's been one of the biggest issues uh, preventing a lot of productions coming back to work or at least some kind of underwriting
3: there is no insurance in Israel for production with the covid and not only us uh, continue to produce all of the production company in Israel are producing uh, since june and all of them and us included taking the risk it's a financial risk of course because there is no insurance But on the other hand, I have to say that something that was very good in Israel is the unions got to a deal with the producer about um, the payment in the time. If you stop uh, production and then go back. And they were very generous with us and did a good collaboration under this situation. So everyone got back to producing in June and with a a good, good relationship with the unions and good deals with the unions and no insurance.
4: And how has the pandemic affected what viewers see on the channels and how has it affected the channels and digital services and how have they performed so far? Yes, so first of all, uh, this market
3: is not based on advertising, but on subscriber fee. So it means that uh, I'm talking about a multi-channel market, not the broadcasters, of course. So our partners, HOT, yes, especially, and also uh, the OTT partners, all of them just did whatever they can to bring more content and more entertainment to the audience in this time. Uh, So, for example, in our case, we launched a new channel for free. It was uh, an exercising uh, channel for the adult audience that could not go out and do their exercise. So we launched a whole channel of how to exercise at home. So this is one example. The other example, and this is what we did with kids, we had two productions that were due to be launched around June and we just did whatever we can and launched them April or March when the um, quarantine started because we understood that kids are at home. They don't have anything to do. And we, we have to supply them some kind of relief and some kind of entertainment. We open um, an open studio, a live studio for teens uh, to ask questions and to have some information about the COVID so we did it every day. We even did something with the prime minister and his wife. They came to Nick Channel and answered kids' questions about the COVID. And we did some campaign to um, get the kids into the washing their hands and keeping the mask on. And we launched a lot of new content because our main uh, role in this period of time was to keep our audience entertained and to give them A few hours to forget what is happening outside and the fact that they can't go out and do their stuff, which is very important.
4: You've sort of got two baskets of channels. You've got the Teen and the the Viacom CBS channels, and and then you've got the um, Anani channels, which are the the lifestyle and factual channels. How have they all performed over this period? I mean, did they benefit from people being in lockdown and and needing uh, screen-based entertainment? I
3: think like everywhere else in the world, our rating went up in the adult channels or the lifestyle channels and on the kids channel and, um, Uh, comedy, MTV, all of them the rating went up, although we had to split our rating with a broadcaster, which what they did in the epidemic is open studio and analysts and doctors and all of that our role was to entertain the audience and the role of the broadcast was to more of information and get them the latest news and the numbers and everything, so uh, 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 the rating went up and the loyalty we have huge uh, engagement to our channels on the kids' side and on the lifestyle side. So it's also, it's gone up. Because in this time of need, kids, dolls, all of them needed someone to rely on, to, again, entertain, talk to them. And we see it in a very serious way. It's it's our role. It's, it's give them a bit of comfort in, in this time of need. And it was yeah. a time of need. You were locked in, in your home, either alone when you're, you know, the adult side, alone, cannot see your grand- grandchildren, your kids. It's it's difficult time. So we had to give a lot of content
4: and entertainment
3: to keep them as much as we can happier.
4: Will the spread of content that you have remain the same Uh, albeit with these new COVID-proof production measures, or has there been a shift in the kinds of programs that you're looking for simply because of the conditions that we now find ourselves in?
3: Basically, we're maintaining the spread because what we are specializing in is teen and YA content, which always big and needed and adult drama and uh, adult drama our specialty and it's in it's in israeli specialty is uh an action espionage all those kinds of drama which is very big here the creator's are very good at, and we are specialising that, and also of course animation, which we are doing as well. I think this time of COVID gave the whole content industry a big boost up because a lot of creators set and develop, and the development went faster and faster because you had the time, you had the time to spend with yourself and your thought and creative, and there have been a lot of development around everywhere, and in Israel as well. My personal idea on the kind of content, I think in the upcoming year, people will want more of entertainment or feel-good content. But since to develop and produce taking a lot of time, we are
4: we are still developing everything and doing everything. How... Is it best for third parties to work with Anani and how do they pitch to you?
3: Okay, we ha- we are working with a lot of third party companies. Actually, it's another benefit of uh, being part of ICOM CBS because for us any company that want to either co-produce with Israeli broadcaster, hot, yes. Khan or anyone in the, this market or want to develop with us something to the international market, we are open to here and to different kinds of models, co-production, co-development, executive producers, whatever, right for the project. And we have all kinds of deals. And again, as we all saw, the globe is all open and there is um, now more than ever a possibility to work together and to create together.
4: It's hard to forecast too far ahead, but you know w- w- what for you will be the biggest challenges over the next year?
3: So if I would have to point out one is traveling and why, because we think we have a special ability to produce here in Israel. Uh, American shows European shows since we we did it with Netflix it was great success and we are doing it fast and very in a very professional way and now that traveling is not something we can do it's it's a bit of a challenge but again we look furthermore in the road we are all hoping this situation will finish in a year and then we can uh, get back to traveling and bring here actors and shoot here in Israel like we plan to do uh, and I think this is one challenge we are facing. Producing other COVID was, um, again, learning crave. I think we got it. We know how to do it. Yes, it costs more, and it needs more flexibility, but we now have the knowledge how to. How many
4: scripted projects do you have on your slate at any one time? And has this changed? And do you see the industry moving into a a productive phase? First of all, we
3: have on our slate something around 25, 30 different developments. I think that what is happening to the content market, and it happened before the COVID, is more platform, more binge watching. Until a few years ago, you would uh, produce a series, then broadcast it week by week. So you have four months Five months for a series. Now you launch it in one time and get uh, get the series done. So what it means is that you need much more content in any given moment. And the new platforms, the new streamers, the Paramount Plus, the new one of CBS, and the other ones that are in the market, Netflix, Disney Plus, all of those will just increase the need of content. And it's a good thing for the content industry. And the other good news for the content industry is that the language barrier is almost gone. People around the globe are willing to watch a series in any language, which wasn't the case a few years ago. So again, it's opened a new window for all content people around the globe. And I think Israel is a good place to, to benefit because we have great creators, great uh, relationship with the Israeli platform, and we are very much focused in in great content.
0: Oli Atlas-Katz from NNA Communications. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.